Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Star Podcast. Uh, here we are on the last day of March, uh, 31st, uh, 2020. Uh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, this is a month that we are glad is ending. Uh, so um, back with me again today is Mr. Chris Reardon. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me. And uh, I, too, am glad March is ending, and uh, I'm glad uh, winter is to an end and we're getting into spring a little bit more now. So. Yeah, it's coming up here. Well, everybody who's uh, on the podcast has heard this before, but just by way of review, Chris is a newly married man, uh, and uh, there's plenty of uh, plenty of teasing about that. He's the four-star director of development, uh, master of all things portfolio trading reports. He still loves his Cleveland Indians, caretaker of his golden, golden doodle puppy, not new anymore, uh, Hudson, and uh, Chris was raised in Cleveland, and he's a fan of the Cleveland Browns. Again, Chris, uh, welcome uh, joining me again on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here and glad to uh, talk a little bit about the market. And I'm Brian Castle, founder and CEO of Four Star Wealth Advisors. I'm an Eagle Scout and trustee of the National Boy Scout Foundation. Uh, everything's kind of shut down right now, even in the scouting world, except for online. Uh, but I'm also a charter advisor of philanthropy. There's still a lot of philanthropic things going on now. Uh, I'm an advisor to CEOs, public company officers, chief investment company, chief investment officer of, of Four Star Wealth, and most importantly, I'm dad uh, to Quinn and Evan, two amazing young men, and husband to the amazing Tripti, uh, and a fan of the Not So Research in Chicago Bears. And I'm here uh, to the podcast, so Chris and I are ready to go. We have a lot to talk about today. Um, the uh, We don't want to keep talking about this virus, but we have no choice. We have to talk about it. It's really totally dominating our life. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Then we'll review the markets and the economy and what the virus and all the changes in our lives are doing to all those things. And then at the end today, we're going to do an interview with Bob and Josh Barone, two of the smartest bond guys that I've ever met. And they're also, it turns out, to be four-star advisors as well as experienced bond managers. And we'll get into that interview later on in, in the day. So, Chris, let's let's uh, let's get on with We have a general update on the virus, and there's going to be daily increases now, right, Chris, uh, to the number of cases uh, that, that are being issued? Yeah, so I mean, right now we have about 175,000 cases in the U.S. Um, you know, not, no surprise there. We talked about this, I think, the last two weeks you've been going on. Um, with more testing, is going to come more cases. That's to be expected. But, you know, a key figure that we're looking at is um, everyone's heard this term. It's been celebrities have kind of what flatten the curve is what they're looking to do. Um, so right. we've seen that exponential uh, rise. We're starting to see, you know, all this data is very preliminary. We're starting to see some preliminary data where it's starting to, the daily increases are starting to, to decrease a little bit, um, which is the hopefulness that the social distancing and all, all this um, you know, stuff that quarantines and things like that, that people have been enacting are starting to have some impact. Uh, it's still very early to see if that impact is, you know, if that's true or it could be, there's always a possibility that it's a head fake and that, you know, it's going to explode up again. Uh, but hopefully it doesn't. And hopefully, you know, that is true. And we are starting to see um, some positive impact with all the, um, you know, everything that's happened and cities kind of being um, shut down to a degree and all the restaurants closing. So, um, you know, that that's, that's going to be key. And if we can get ahead of that, uh, there still is going to be increases, but if we can see the increase increases in cases start to decrease um, slowly, eventually, hopefully, we get to a flattened curve, and then from there uh, we see kind of a decrease. Um, that that's kind of the key. So uh, something to keep an eye on. Um, we may be starting to see the beginning of it, or you know, we may be a week or two or three or two weeks out. Uh, it's still unknown, uh, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And we're already seeing some of that preliminary flattening and even decreasing in Italy. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And even China, of course, we don't necessarily know if we believe any of the numbers out of China, and certainly they've got a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of things to answer for uh, in this whole situation. But they're claiming they're seeing a stabilization and a minimal new cases. So as long as we can see a worldwide uh, deceleration, then we know something good is happening. Right, Chris? Is that the idea? 
Yeah, I mean, and, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think taking a look at China, the numbers out of there, I think you kind of do have to take with a grain of salt. But I think a good um, example to look at is in Italy, and that was a very much a worst-case scenario in many regards. Um, but if we can kind of take a look at the data that came out of there, what their curve looked like, um, where the apex was and all that, and kind of model off what's happening there, um, you know, hopefully we kind of can follow the trend that data where the apexes and then, you know, decreases, because uh, we are seeing some decreases in cases in Italy, and that's, that's positive to see after all the, um, you know, destruction and everything that's kind of happened there. Yeah. Well, there's been a lot of confusion. So we weren't getting good information in the beginning, and various people were engaged in uh, trying to solve it. The the, the president uh, talks about how he cut off all contact uh, with movement between uh, U.S. and China uh, very early on. Uh, then, you know, this is an election year, so there's politics involved in this, and so everyone's trying to take credit. They're trying to avoid blame all those kinds of things, and we're seeing a lot of that play out. But, um, you know, we did see the president last week say uh, he was going to try and open up uh, some of the restrictions uh, for certain industries to be able to go back to work as early as uh, today, and it turns out uh, that he decided not to do that. He decided to recommend everyone continue with the social distancing and the other uh, suggestions he put through uh, for the 15-day he extended that another month, and and uh, you know clearly I think they think if we do that, uh, that the the curve of increases will uh, flatten and hopefully start going down. The number one is to solve this crisis. That way we can solve the economy. We can't solve the economy or the financial markets or anything else until we solve this crisis. So uh, they even considered a complete quarantine of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Did back down from that. But now they're working together, uh, and it seems like for the first time in a long time, a lot of the political sides are actually getting along with a few noted exceptions. We've seen some interesting stuff, Chris, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's this is definitely going to have a play in politics. There's a time and place for that. I think that's going to be, you know, hopefully this has all run its course uh, through in the fall or late summer, and I think it's going to have, you know, people are going to talk about it. it's going to be part of debates in that time period um and there's no surprise there so i but i think right now like you said the key is is to get this virus under control and i mean it, it's pretty mir miraculous what we're seeing we're seeing mobilization of industries and companies that are trying to provide benefits i mean we've seen uh, distilleries vodka distilleries transition from producing vodka to hand sanitizer. We, I just saw on there Brooks Brothers, which is obviously a clothing manufacturer, is now producing masks. Um, Ford and GM and certain car companies are producing ventilators. So, you know, it's almost the mobilization is something we really haven't seen since like World War II, where they took the same concept and applied it to the war effort. So, um, you know, it's never a good thing. And obviously this is a horrible situation for the world and the U.S., but um, you know, it is always miraculous to kind of see the country come together and really support, you know, one another and really try to make a difference, whether that means, you know, I mean, I think everyone's heard countless stories about landlords or people giving breaks to their tenants to try to, you know, help curb this. It, it really kind of shows the humanity, um, you know, where that humanity is. And I think people get caught up in the moment. If you go back even a year ago from today, you know, people get caught up and you don't see as much of that as that humanity. So there's that grounding effect. And, um, you know, I think hopefully everyone seems to be coming together right now, like you said, Brian, and we'll see um, hopefully a deceleration in cases and we'll catch, we'll hit that apex, which is eventually going to happen. And uh, we'll start to see a decrease and get this under control. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's heartening to see the country coming together, however sad this is. But uh, it seems like we're finally doing the things that we need to solve this problem, and then maybe the economy can get back on track. Uh, watching uh, one of the uh, financial channels, I just saw, you know, there's going to be, they, they're projecting if we go to 30% unemployment in the short run, we'll see 47 million people lose their jobs, which is crazy. Um, you know, but, you know, one of the things they did in Germany uh, in the last uh, crisis is they tried to get employers to go to part-time uh, with more people part-time than specific people losing their jobs. 
So some of those things are happening now as well. So the more people are detached from their job, uh, the harder it is to get them back into the system. So hopefully they do start doing some of those things smarter than maybe in previous cycles. But back to the financial markets. So financial markets have basically been in a panic mode. Uh, we've detailed uh, some of the uh, interesting things that have happened and sad things that have happened in the last uh, month or so on previous podcasts. So, Chris, uh, you have all the positioning information and where we are net right now, right? Yeah. So um, right now, uh, our current positioning, not much that really changed from a, I guess, a, an asset allocation perspective. Our top three asset classes are still cash, fixed income, and currencies, which are very much um, you know, non, um, more defensive, I guess you could say stocks. Yeah, the lower, asset. the lower risk ones. Right, right. The lower risk asset class is correct. Uh, followed by domestic equities, commodities, and international equities. So, um, even though we've had over the last week, we've had a nice kind of run up, actually a record kind of rebound. Um, we still haven't seen much movement upwards from domestic equities and that's to be expected. Um, we have several indicators that we do track. And um, some of our indicators are more sensitive, and we have had indicators turn positive uh, from this massive run-up over the last week or so. Um, but we do have some indicators that we have that are going to be a less sensitive, and that, that's an important part of our uh, investing methods uh, is to make sure that we aren't too sensitive, and we have a portion that's very sensitive and a portion of our indicators that aren't, uh, so we can kind of, as Brian likes to say, have that dial it's important yeah. to kind of have that dial for investing so we know when to kind of get defensive and when to start dipping our toes uh, into the waters. Well, that's all interesting, Chris, you know, and, and even with that huge rally, uh, we saw the market rally 20% off the bottom in three days, 20%. That's never happened. It's the biggest rally ever. But even with that, the, the low-risk asset classes gained on the high risk asset classes in the long term sort and the higher risk asset classes that grew 20% by the benchmark still ticked downward. So that'll show you how the long term indicators aren't really much affected by short term volatility swings. Um, last week we talked about uh, the 6% reading on the New York Stock Exchange bullish percent uh, which had, has only happened five times in, in our recorded history. And we've also seen now the quickest recovery. So that 6% went up into the 30s. So it did recover and go into a positive column. So what's the possibility of it going back down to you know, 5 or 6% on the bullish percent? It would take a complete wipeout again in the market. And uh, it seems like things are stabilizing a little bit, but volatility is still pretty high, so it could go down. Uh, so it's unlikely that it would go back down, but if we do break the lows, there's a chance that it could. Um, the bullish percent index spiked upward, even when we saw this 20% move off the bottom. But again, it, you know, for those who were in at the top as investors, the move from the bottom to the 20% level off the bottom is only about about 14% of the decline, which was almost 40% in the market. So, so it's, it's not as much, but the market, of course, the media went crazy and said, you know, oh, it's a new bull market and everything. And, I, and my reaction to that would be not so fast. Um, volatility is very, very high even now. And so it's going to take a period of time for volatility to go down. And that's why we're not even taking the signal of a quote-unquote new bull market and putting all, our, all the money that we've raised to work because we think we need to be very, very careful here. Um, with the volatility as high as it is, we could see the markets you know, collapse from here too um, as the sellers uh, come in. Uh, again, if they do, today we're having a down day. Yesterday was a nice up day. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit more kind of near-term stabilization. But if we get some you know, violent news on corona or something else or uh, maybe significantly worse numbers expected on the economy and, and job losses or something else happening that's unanticipated, we could see the market going right back down. Don't you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what we characterize this market really as is an event-driven market, and there's still a lot of unknowns out there. Um, we kind of saw that first little tidbit of economic news come out. It was like 3.2 million in uh, new unemployment numbers, which was really the first major economic statistic we've really seen since this came out. And it, it's going to continue, but I, there's a lot we still can't 
predict. I mean, it's a very unpredictable market, and I think that lends to the fact that, like you said, the volatility uh, continues to be very high right now. Right. Well, and, and given the fact that we did have such a strong move off the bottom, there is a chance that the bottom did happen uh, in the 18,000 range on the Dow. And, you know, we track other indexes as well, but that's just one everyone talks about a lot is the Dow Jones. So if that turns out to have been the bottom, uh, we wanted to participate in some way. So of all the cash we raised and the dynamic accounts that we run went to 100% cash, the U.S. sector tactical went to 100% cash. And then our two moderate portfolios went to 50, actually closer to 60% cash as it worked out because we sold a, another full position. We've now taken 25% of the cash that was there and put that back into positions to see if it is the bottom. Um, but normally we would do much more than that given the, given the price movement. But because the volatility is so high, we were overriding that and keeping the other three quarters of the cash we raised in cash and waiting to see lower volatility and better signals. So uh, we're essentially like a hedged risk position. Uh, and if the markets go back down, we'll probably take a loss in some of those positions. Hopefully not. As I said before, you know, when we raise cash and we're out of the market, we really, we really hope that's the wrong decision. We don't want the markets to go down further, but we're trying to protect against if some catastrophic event were to happen where we're down 50, 60, 70%. The worst bear market in history was actually the oil market. And Chris, you weren't even alive for that one yet, were you? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, and I, and I was a young 13-year-old boy in 1974, and um, my experience uh, with the oil crisis, when oil went from $3 to $18 a barrel overnight and completely destroyed the American economy uh, at that time, uh, markets went down uh, 75% from top to bottom, and all I knew was the bus fare to scout camp doubled, uh, but that was catastrophic to a 13-year-old boy who wanted to go to scout camp. So, uh, obviously, the world was dealing with a lot of other things at that time. That was OPEC, and also at that time, uh, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, uh, the summer of 74, Richard Nixon resigned, and, and Gerald Ford came in, and he pardoned Nixon, so there was all this consternation. One of the times that the bullish percent index went below 10%, one of those five times. So a uh, very, very difficult time. Uh, but, you know, at that time, you know, the, there was an opportunity then uh, to get back in the markets. But, you know, we hope we don't have that kind of a, you know, a big 70% collapse in the market. The worst it got was in some of the indexes now to 40%. Let's hope that's the bottom. And we hope that we have too much cash. And if we do, as, as we get better signals, we'll put that money to work when we think risk is rewarded. Right now, when you take risk and you buy something now, market could be up big today and down tomorrow. You could be, you know, up and then down and up and then down. There's no sense of certainty at all, and that's because of the override of the volatility. So. Yeah, and I think, you know, like like we've spoken about in past podcasts, um, you know, we're fine losing a trying not to exactly catch the bottom, um, maybe losing a little bit of that upside because um, we're confident we can gain it back, utilizing relative strength to overweight certain sectors. Once we kind of fully, you know, see the trend come to realization and we're kind of get fully back on, on offense there. Um, so we're fine giving a little bit of it back to, you know, catch back up a little bit later. Um, although we've gained a lot um, on that downside, a lot of protection on the downside. Um, so I think we're in pretty good position right now. Yeah. So our, our average fully invested stock account that then converted to uh, cash positions and heavy cash positions was down about half of what the markets were. And then our balanced accounts were down only about a third of what the markets were. So all of our clients are the, the benefit of that. We're very proud of that. Uh, now is the time to not make mistakes and wait till we see the water is warmer to fully engage uh, in the risk side. On the, on the safe bucket side, though, Chris, we've kept our our bonds and cash and other things, those have been just fine, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've utilized more safe asset classes um, when you did there. And, you know, I think their bonds have, you know, there's been volatility in the markets, but overall they've performed how they're kind of supposed to. Um, and cash is, you know, cash is always going to perform. You know, it's a great defensive positioning there. So, um, I, you know, I think overall our positioning has been strong. Um, and we're looking to, like Brian said, um, 
not jump back in too early and um, kind of make sure we confirm the trend movements and everything. Well, one thing I like in in the numbers, we see that cash is in the number one position. And again, by way of reminder, cash means our cash and cash means American cash, meaning the American dollar. So our dollar is still stronger versus foreign currencies, uh, which are in the third position. And so again, we still are ranked as the top uh, economy, which is why cash is, is uh, considered better than foreign currency. Uh, there have been times when foreign currency has been stronger than ours. It was that way in 2008, 2009, because our financial system was very, very weak. As difficult as the last couple of six weeks have been, uh, our financial condition as a country is still better than most of the countries in the world. And that's why the dollar in cash as a measurement of that is still doing well. Um, we're obviously concerned that the federal government added $2.2 trillion to the national debt with these new programs. The, the Fed is also in, injecting as much as $4 trillion of new cash flow into the market, uh, whether it be released to banks or, or other benefits, so uh, quantitative easing. So uh, the Fed, last time around, never completely unwound the balance sheet that they created in 2008, 2009. Now we're going back to a high balance sheet again. So we're a little concerned about that, but over time, uh, the Fed and the economy can work that down, which we did for the most part this time around. And so, uh, you know, this is a time to solve the crisis. And if the federal government has to overshoot uh, the benefits in the short run, uh, they they need to. Um, we'll mention uh, there was a uh, 60 Minutes interview with Neil Kashkari from the Minneapolis Fed, and he talks about how they're overdoing it this time, and they may have underdone it a little bit in 2008. They could have acted swifter and, and, and made the recession less uh, severe. Uh, this time, they're they're making a point of overdoing it to make sure that there's plenty of liquidity in the economy. Uh, now, interestingly enough, though, even even in this environment, there's a lot of a lot of interesting things that happen in the in the market. And Chris, you've been looking at some of the companies that are acting better, uh, and some of the commodities that are out there as well. Yeah. So you know, with any of these markets, we've talked about this in the past. You have to, you have even if the market's been trending down, obviously March has been a very bad month. There's always winners and losers, and I think with this, you've seen the winners mostly be in the, the tech industry, um, and that's why you know relative to the other major indexes, the Nasdaq has has been a, a better performer uh, over the month of March. Um, so you know, I think one of the key things to look at is our to tech is a trend, and you have Zoom conference, which has been in the media a lot. You have um, you know Citrix, you have certain cloud environments like Microsoft, Amazon's cloud. Um, that have been getting a lot of, um, I would say, a lot of growth uh, due to this because you have people that need to work more remotely. You have you have a lot of um, more tech usage going on here. Um, but then the firms that have suffered uh, recently, yesterday, Macy's came out and they furloughed 1,300 employees. Um, I think the the companies that are really going to hurt are the brick and mortars, the ones that did not make that transition to e-commerce. Um, so what we're seeing is this is almost exacerbating the trends that we've seen over the last five to ten years, which has been, you know, brick and mortar and and, and um, retailers, commercial retailers that did not transition to e-commerce have been struggling. Um, so we've seen that kind of get exacerbated by this, and we could see, you know, this could push some of those retailers to bankruptcy. We could see that that's as a real possibility. But then coming out of this, um, this, you know, whatever this kind of subsides, this is always going to be in the back of people's heads. So I think these trends are something that could continue over the next five to 10 years, and they could even strengthen. Um, so there are certain plays within here. Um, any down market, there are certainly companies that are going to, at certain points, even be positive and a, and a negative um, down day for the S&P or the Dow. So um, there are always what people always refer to as a diamond in the rough, kind of. Um, yeah. There's always a diamond in the rough uh, situation there. Uh, and commodities, um, there's another situation, too, that a lot of people don't realize. Um, so commodities as a whole have been, the most part, moving downwards, and that's because industrial metals, people aren't using industrial metals as much because they're not building. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, there's not as much construction going on. You also have the oil situation, which we've talked about in the past. Between, it's been terrible. Uh, yeah, terrible. Yeah, I mean, in the worst bear market um, in a long, long time for the oil market. So, you know, commodities as a whole, you've had precious metals have been kind of uh, a ballast there for them. 
but most people don't realize is uranium has actually had a 14% increase over the last two to three weeks. Um, so once again, the diamond in the rough for commodities has really been your, this unknown uranium. And the reasoning behind that is uh, this virus is infecting the mining facilities for some uranium deposits. Uh, so you have a, a maintaining demand because nuclear power plants um, and other, you know, operational facilities that utilize uranium uh, still need uranium. So you have a you have a demand there, and um, you know I, I think the other key you, you have a supply that is decreasing. So you have a maintaining yeah, restricted a yeah yeah restricted supply. Yeah. And so you're going to see the price skyrocket, and that's where we're seeing that 14% uptick. So there's always something so. positive. Uh, in fact, the CNBC um, uh, showman, James Kramer, Jim Kramer, he talks about that all the time. He says there's a bull market out there somewhere. So people making masks, uh, people doing conferencing, software, uh, food delivery, Target, Walmart, those companies are hiring people. So there, there's always something positive going on even in a negative environment, isn't there? Um, yes, exactly. I mean, then that's yeah. key. And I think that's something that, you know, when we utilize relative strength investing, that's something that we take a look at as well. Yeah, we're watching it very closely. And, and Boeing Boeing was uh, the sick man of the Dow, of the 30 stocks in the Dow. Clearly, uh, it was a bad uh, situation uh, because Boeing had that one plane that needed to be retooled and there were some crashes. And then uh, now, of course, no one's buying planes. The whole airline industry is basically virtually shut down with 90 percent uh, less people going through TSA, as you said, Chris, and everything like that. So, but, but Boeing will benefit really nicely from the stimulus because they're basically trying to backstop certain industries that are strategic. And we d definitely need a, an airline transportation industry in America. So the federal government's providing enough liquidity to keep them afloat. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Boeing is crucial on so many measurements, not only from <clears throat> an aviation standpoint, but from a defense standpoint. Um, you know, it's it's really it's a crucial company to mm -hmm. um, the U.S. economy. So, um, you know, it's important that we help keep them afloat. And a lot of little weird things happen in markets like this. And, and one I wanted to point out, Chris mentioned the Zoom conference. Well, there is a stock that is actually a telephone company, not a conference company called Zoom. Uh, technologies and the symbol is Z O O M, but that's not the one people are doing FaceTime virtual conferences on. Uh, that's symbol Z M. So a lot of people are buying the wrong company. So the New York Stock Exchange is putting out notices to the to the public: please stop buying the wrong stock, as everyone thinks they're buying the Zoom company stock, and that's symbol Z M. And the uh, phone stock is, is Zoom Z O O M. So there's a lot of trade errors going on now, uh, and then and then I. I just wanted to point out something else, Chris, that I just noticed. For as long as I've been in the industry, which is 35 years now, uh, there's been a general understanding, or maybe there isn't anymore, uh, that investors, when they're buying individual stocks, like to buy stocks at reasonable prices. So if they buy 100 shares or or 500 shares, uh, they can do it, you know, within a certain limited dollar amount. So let's say you buy a $40 stock and you buy 100 shares, it's $4,000, and the average guy can maybe buy 100 shares of stock. <clears throat> so they used to try to split their stocks when they rose in value to keep the price below $100 a share at least. Well, that's no longer the case. So out of the 30 Dow stocks, only nine of the 30 are below $100 a share. I think that changed in the last cycle when all the technology stocks were the best names, like Amazon and Google, and those were all the really high-priced stocks, trading at three, $400 a share, Apple, hundreds of dollars a share. I remember buying Apple at 140 and feeling we're overpaying for it. But the reality is, if you buy a stock that's three, four, $500 a share, it's only uh, value at that level if the earnings are keeping pace, just like if you buy a $10 stock, the earnings have to keep pace. So the price of the stock shouldn't really matter. What should matter is the earnings that are underlying and the value of the company. And so it doesn't matter if the stock's $2,000 a share or $20 a share. It matters what the per share earnings are and the per share uh, quality of that company is in general, dividends and all those things. But um, but we've gotten off, uh, Chris, our desire to buy 20 to to $50 stocks now. We'll buy any price, right, it seems? 
Yeah, and, you know, a lot of that, you know, also has to do with just recent developments and uh, technology within the financial industry. You know, now the Joe Schmo investor who may only have 500 bucks can purchase, uh, you know, uh, even a portion, like 50% or so of Amazon stock, you know, so you can buy portions of stock. Now, there, there's so many different ways um, that investors have yeah. um, access to the markets. It's, it's definitely different, but you know, that, that I feel like that's a psychological thing, you know, like the, the bigger, the, the uh, price, the, the bigger, the uh, bottom line, the bigger, the more revenue the company's doing, the stronger the businesses. And it doesn't always tend to be the case. And there's different ways that companies can even manipulate that bottom line to make, you know, make their, uh, their stock price go up and there's different ways to yeah so it's not always a, a one plus one equals two type of scenario yeah so there are a lot of great opportunities out there in the stock market that we hope to take advantage of when things get uh, a little bit less volatile a little bit clearer when there's not such a uh a strange panic on um but uh, there's always a lot of interesting things uh, happening under the surface and we just wanted to point a couple of those out so uh chris at this point i think we'll uh, take a break and stay tuned for the uh, interview with Bob and Josh Barone. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Chris and I are back uh, with uh, are the subjects of our, our great interview today. Uh, we have with us uh, two of the smartest guys in the bond market, uh, and they're also financial advisors. Welcome, everybody, uh, to Bob and Josh Barone. Bob and Josh, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, let's just do a little bit of an introduction. Uh, Bob Barone is a seriously ex uh, senior and experienced bond manager, a 50-year veteran of the industry. He's the uh, former chairman of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, serves on the board of uh, AAA, uh, that's the American Automobile Association, for those of you who don't remember that. Uh, also, the Auto Club of Northern California, and is on the board of Allied Mineral Products out of Ohio, which does business in Russia, China, India. So Bob gets a lot of really interesting inputs on economies all over the world. He's a senior Fed-level economist, and we're very proud to have him on here again. Bob, welcome uh, to the podcast. Yeah, I just wish it wasn't uh, that I wasn't there for 50 years. So if it was 30 years, I'd be a lot happier. Well, there you go. There you go. And then we and have uh, Josh yeah. Barone. Yep, and then we have Josh Barone. Uh, he's a 25-year vet in the industry. Uh, his entire um, experience has been in the independent space. Uh, he's worked with mutual funds, hedge funds, insurance companies, and is currently operating uh, his ETF, uh, FFIU, uh, which is on the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Well, to, just to start out, you know, the, the people who know the industry well often know mostly the stock investors. Usually when individual clients are getting phone calls from financial advisors, that's usually people who are talking about stocks. In the old days, when they would call and sell stocks and things like that in the, in the broker world. And, but we didn't hear that often from people in the bond market. Bond guys are cerebral. They work on desks. They analyze data. Uh, but I think the bond people in our industry who understand the bond markets are some of the smartest people, if not the smartest people, on on Wall Street, and that is uh, the embodiment of Josh and, and Bob Barone. They are the managers of the Universal Value Unconstrained Bond Fund, which is an actively managed bond ETF that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and they are also uh, four-star advisors for wealthy families, and they're based in Reno, Tahoe, uh, which is just a wonderful place to live. So anyway, uh, again, we're very proud to have them on the podcast, and Chris, you had some questions you wanted to start with. Yeah, yeah. So we'll start off with the question. I know um, some, several of our clients and people we've spoken to have asked. Um, so when a, when a recession occurs, interest rates are supposed to fall. Uh, but the week of March 15th, uh, the 10-year note upon which many consumer interest rates are based um, nearly quadruples, rising from 0.34% to 1.25% almost overnight. Uh, so in your guys' opinion, kind of what happened in your guys' experience, I guess I should say, what happened um, and, you know, what did this do to the average consumer? So the average consumer experienced uh, rate rises in their mortgage rates if they had a variable rate loan and auto rates in the consumer loan uh, area 
and even credit card rates rose. So what really happened is going to become known in history as the panic of 2020. And the stock market collapsed at a record pace, not, not even seen in the 1930s. Uh, in just a few sessions, the market recognized that the coronavirus is gonna shut down the economy and so the market tanked. Now remember, we had a, a market that was fairly complacent and continued to rise, and we had a lot of complacency in the marketplace because the VIX never really got much above 10 or 12. Uh, now it's at 80, and that's a sign of fear. The higher it is, the more fear there is. There's a fear index, yeah, right, Bob. And and um, the hedge funds and the and the mutual funds not only were complacent, they all had borrowed on margin in in order to you know take advantage and make even more money. Uh, so when stocks fall and everybody has not only used up all their cash but had borrowed on margin, they get something called margin calls. The margin call comes in at 10 o'clock in the morning and you have until 2 o'clock in the afternoon to raise cash. And if you don't have any cash, like most of these people didn't have, they have to sell and they have to sell everything in order to raise the cash. And the more they sell, uh, the lower the prices go because there simply isn't any buyers. And this is um, extremely nasty. It only occurs once in a while, uh, but when it occurs, everything is sold, including treasuries. And so that's why the interest rates uh, rose during that week. So this is this is Joshua Barone. So the one of the problems with interest rates rising so high so quickly is that pricing in the bond market works off of an algorithmic type formula. It's not like the stock market at all. And so when you get a push up in in the treasury curve from you know uh, this large, it, it it really sends panic and and the pricing in the rest of the the upper curves happens to what they call widen. So it gets, it kind of gets out of whack. And although there's not trading there, there's not somebody on the other side making that trade, the, the way the algorithm works, it prices it um, based on another bond of similar status and quality. And so what we saw when this happened is that the pricing spreads in corporate bonds, muni bonds, mortgage bonds, um, all kind of widened at a rapid rate, uh, even bigger than the, the treasury curve. Nice. Okay. So this isn't something that's normal, I guess, in, in normal operating markets. Um, it's usually very, it's very unusual to see bond prices fall uh, when stocks are kind of getting hammered. Um, is there any precedent for this? Yeah, this is Bob. So this, there is some precedent. Um, and uh, it's unusual, and we like to forget some, but uh, just to remind people who have been around for the last 20 years, um, when long-term capital management failed, we had this kind of a phenomenon. We had the same phenomenon when 9-11 occurred, and twice uh, during, the, uh, during the Great Recession, uh, or the lead up to the Great Recession, both when Bear Stearns failed in uh, early in 08 and when Lehman failed late in 08. And so what, what happened is that interest rates first rose like they did uh, here uh, a couple weeks ago. And, and then by the end of, uh, of the era, let's say two or three months down the road, the interest rates are actually lower, end up being lower than when they started. So if that's the precedent that's gonna be followed here, we're actually gonna see the 10-year treasury, which is currently falling back into the 0.65 range, the 0.7 range percent, 0.65% to 0.7% to, to go even lower than that. We think we'll see the front end of the curve go negative. It's already been negative a, a, a few, uh, 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 swats here, and so we think the front end of the curve will go negative as they bring the back end of the curve down. So the back end of the curve was, was all the way up to a 180, um, what was that, a week ago, and now it's down to a 130, 30, it was at a 120 something yesterday. Uh, you know, my belief is that it should probably be near a 1%, uh, 
with all the money they're throwing out and maybe even low, lower if they keep on doing more stimulus packages like they're talking about. You know, with, with interest rates are so low. I mean, many people who are listening to the podcast remember the 20% money markets in, in 1980. And, and uh, for the longest time, uh, we had 5% uh, I mean, 20% uh, CDs and money markets, and then then the normalized level of money markets was 5%, right? So now we've got everything way, way below that. And you mentioned, Bob, treasury yields of 60 basis points to 70 basis points, that it's in keeping with history. What do you mean by that? Because I don't think we've been down here before. How is that in keeping with history? It's keeping with the way in which the market behaved in the past. So what would happen when a panic occurs uh, and when you have the uh, initial interest rates run up instead of down because you're going to have a recession, um, what happens is they run up, but they end up lower than where where they began. And so in all those four uh, instances that I mentioned, that's what happened. The the interest rates were lower than where they started. Now, the 10-year in this instance started at a 0.34%. So we'll see if, if it actually gets back to that uh, level. Uh, I personally think it will. Okay. So um, it, you think the Treasury market's going to start healing? You know, we've had this strange repo market since last fall, so there's been disruption in the credit markets for quite a while now. Um, there's still some issues in the corporate municipal bond market. People were talking of muni bonds priced at such a discount, they're getting a 5% yield in municipal bond markets. What's up with, with all of that? So muni bond markets um, typically are they're pretty solid. You don't see, you don't see, I think the failure rate of a AAA muni bond is less than 1% in, in history. So you don't, you don't see, you know, too much movement in those, of those markets. So what happened is um, when the government basically came in and shut down the market, uh, people got worried about interest payments going to uh, municipalities, so tax payments, because municipalities live on sales tax. And right. so the muni, the muni market got scared and threw everything out and, and what they call, you know, throwing it all in the sink and, and letting God sort it out, right? Um, right. And because they, they were worried about their tax payments. Now, there was, the opportunity came in places that are pre-refunded bonds or, you know, revenue bonds off, like, whole roads. I mean, either, yes, there's less, less traffic going over, say, the, the, the San Francisco Bay Bridge, but what they'll do is they'll just raise the price because there's not too many ways around it. So they're pretty secure still, and so the pricing – why we think it's questionable, the underlying securities are still um, what we think are, are great. And then to add to that, uh, the, the new um, bill, the new stimulus bill that government is suggesting is supposedly going to have a lot of stimulus for, for the state to, to deal with this kind of thing. Sure, so it's basically a panic. It's a panic, right, basically? Yeah. Yes, yeah. and going to the corporate yeah. market, so what happened in the corporate market is that um, – we have had in this last cycle a huge amount of borrowing by fairly lower quality uh, companies. They borrowed in order to do stock buybacks, et cetera. Uh, the triple B rated companies uh, in, in the, in the uh, universe now represent 55% of all of the uh, corporate bond market, whereas uh, back in uh, 08, they only represented 35%. And so what we have seen here is that the corporate bonds of this lower quality aren't coming back as fast because um, uh, hedge fund managers and fund managers who have a requirement to have um, uh, investment grade issues in their portfolio don't want to see S&P and Moody's downgrade these guys to junk status because then they'd have to sell them. And as a result, uh, they're hesitant to buy uh, the lower uh, level of the investment grade. So that's not coming back as fast. But there's lots of opportunity there if you can go find it. So let me, let me add a little bit of a shameless plug here. Um, FFIU, since its uh, inception, <laughs> has uh, always uh, gone after high-quality credit. And when, when we talk about high-quality credit, I'm talking about companies that maybe don't issue a lot of debt, so they don't really get into the passive um, – 
ETF indexes. But what happens is the companies that we're looking at typically have more cash on hand than debt outstanding and are free cash flow positive companies. So they're adding to the cash. Now, that, you know, you have a government stop of all business. Um, so FFIU, in its original thinking, was very focused on tech and, and medical companies, and we stayed away from industrial stuff. And we did that a little bit for the uh, ESG purpose of the fund. Uh, it does, ESG is environmental social governance. Now, the fund doesn't have an ESG mandate, but it's, it's very run very environmentally friendly. And um, so, you know, we had a, a big allocation to tech and medical with high cash, and cash on hand and free cash flow. Those companies have been able to work at home much better than, say, Ford or, or GM. So we were our bonds. The bonds that we hold are are extremely high quality, and even those bonds have had a, a significant widening off the curve. Um, there was an article in Bloomberg about Apple, and uh, the fund noticed that Apple bonds were trading at a overly w wide margin, and bought a bunch uh, two weeks ago in in the middle of this melee of that. So. You know, some, Apple has 200 billion uh, roughly on cash on hand, and so they're they're pretty high quality bond to be buying. So they, the 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 spread shouldn't have been as wide as it was. Okay, that's okay. why we actually manage take advantage of those situations. Nice, mm -hmm. Chris. So so yeah. So for the for the basic investor, um, for the past even 10 years, really, people have really shied away from. Uh, bonds, mostly due to the fact that they've been characterized with low yields, low interest. Uh, it's just been really the environment we've been in, and people have, you know, maybe gone for more dividend-oriented or some other option there. Uh, why should consumers or why should uh, investors buy bonds now um, when yields are going even lower? It looks like we're in a lowering rate environment uh, with what the Fed's doing currently. Uh, why, why, why should investors buy bonds? This is my favorite topic. So, so the media doesn't, doesn't ever tell the investor what the total return on the bond fund is. What it, it tells the investor is, well, if you own stocks for the last year, your, your uh, return was X, Y, Z. It never does that with bonds. And in fact, on TV, it only shows the bond yields and they look really low. So investors say, well, why should I buy that when the yield is so low? It's like telling the investor only what the dividend payment is on the S&P 500. And so they don't do that. Actually, if you had purchased the 30-year treasury back in November, uh, as of today, you would have earned uh, about a 30% return. And that's, if I annualized it, it would be about 70%. That's, that's better than stocks, even at their best. And the math is pretty compelling. And I'll just give you a quick and dirty. If you own, if you purchased a 5% bond and the, the yield then in, uh, two months later went to 4%, your bond would be worth about 25% more. If interest rates, so, so rates went from 5% to 4%, that's a 100 basis point decrease. If you started with a 2% yield, so you bought a bond with a 2% return and we have the same 100 basis points or one percentage point decline in interest rates, your bond doubles in price. So the lower the interest rate goes, the more compelling the math is. So if, if interest rates go from uh, 1% to 50 basis points, you're going to get a doubling. If, if they go to zero, you're going to get a really high return in the bond market. Interesting. Not a, it, it, as the closer you get to the zero bound, the the more hyperbolic the, the return becomes. It's not a linear equation. A lot of people think it's a linear equation. Now, we haven't really ever seen negative interest rates in, in this in this market, so there's some question of what that will do. But again, I don't think you can argue with the math here. The the, the opportunity set here is, is very good at a lower risk level than than say in equities and i'm not bagging on equities because in our opinion equities are just another uh yield curve above everything else and and there'll be opportunities there but 
in the current set where there's still some uncertainty and whether there might be a retest of the lows, uh, we just see a lot of opportunity in mini bond and corporate bonds. So th that's great, Josh. Thanks. And, and, you know, you guys are economists and, you know, hopefully the economy recovers. Um, you know, where do you think rates will head if that's the case? Will we, will we see a return of uh, high inflation, you know, 20% money market someday? You know, where, where are we going with all this? So we all will be long dead before we see that. So. <laughs> I don't think we'll see that again, right? Yeah. Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> no, you I just had to ask you that. Okay. Yeah, the demographics in the whole world's developed economies are against growth. The demographics in Japan kind of outline it. The demographics in the U.S. are such that the populations aren't growing fast, and China. Um, kind of screwed itself over with the one-child policy uh, from 1980 to 2015, and so their population is destined to not grow. Believe it or not, the Chinese uh, won't grow, and when, when you don't have your population growing, it's really hard for your GDP to grow, and when it's hard for your GDP to grow, you get, end up with overcapacity in all of the industrial industries and when you have overcapacity, it's really hard to raise prices. So for the next couple of decades, we're not going to see a lot of inflation or inflationary pressures, and that means interest rates are going to stay low. Yeah, to add to that, you're seeing higher productivity, and as people work smarter, that adds, um, and, and the lack of borders. So, yeah, we talk about borders and immigration, but the lack of borders and trade are, are very much uh, coming into play here. So, you know, we, we imported a lot of deflation from China for the last decade in terms of just pure labor trade. It's cheaper to build things in China than it was in the U.S. and ship them. Um, and so that kind of stuff is still playing out. And so you, you have deflationary pressures in this market, not inflationary, even with them turning on the, the the printing presses and doing and debasing the currency and all that wonderful stuff that the, the gold bugs like to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and so why they are debasing our currency, they do have federal reserve status until they don't. And I, and people laugh at me when I say that and because everything can be said until they don't. So as long as they're the reserve currency, they can print money to a point. And, and, and that's nobody they... knows what that point is. And so why don't particularly like them debasing the, the currency as much as they are, you have to understand the situation of, of what they're trying to do. Um, and so, and they're basically trying to starve off credit, uh, credit uh, dysfunction or, or, or destruction in, in terms of uh, people in, in their homes and businesses. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I remember um, Josh and Bob sitting in a hotel room in, in September of 2008 watching Ben Bernanke talk about the same things. And, you know, he, that's the day that they took interest rates from uh, where, wherever they were down to zero to a 0.25 range. And, and for a lot of the listeners, you know, the Fed can't really make interest rates go there. They'd make adjustments to cause it to stay in a range. So they always quote a range, zero to 0.25. And, you know, it took, you know, three, you know, many, many years before rates were starting to rise again. We're seeing any kind of inflation. Um, and, you know, now we had this all happen in a very short period of time where, where rates uh, dropped very quickly. Uh, and they took a lot quicker action now than in 2008. I saw an interview with Neil Kashkari, who's the president of the Minneapolis Fed, and he was saying that they, were, they realized now they were too cautious in 2008. They felt they didn't want to overreact, but they should have uh, been much more, uh, as he said, they should have gone overboard in monetary policy and helped avoid uh, the devastating recession that we had. So the, the Fed could have done more, they thought. Um, you know, it took 10 years for some workers to get, you know, to get uh, even back before the crisis. So what, what do you guys think about the Fed and what they're doing now? Uh, have they done everything they can do? Are there, there are tools left? So, so the, the Fed, uh, we thought, uh, was constrained by the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, 
but it turns out that the Treasury has some emergency powers. And so last week, we actually saw the Fed in uh, the muni bond market on the short end buying muni bonds. Um, there's talk that uh, they'll have permission to buy corporate bonds pretty soon. Uh, now, this is just like what, what the ECB, the European Central Bank, has in Europe. So they have that power, and they've been using um, they've been buying corporate bonds in Europe uh, for their balance sheet. Um, and I think that um, they may even get the power to buy stocks. Uh, I hope they don't use it, but um, they might get it. And so the Fed has a, a lot more um, tools than, than anybody thinks. Just because they went to the zero bound in interest rates doesn't mean they don't have any more tools. They have a lot of tools. Yes. The biggest one being a printing press. So they can print money. We have quantitative easings going on. Uh, they can also release a whole series of other monies, release regulations on mortgages and other things. So, yeah, there's still a lot of tools left, right? They have things they can well, do to keep get the economy going again. Well, they, they also lighten some of the regulation on the banks in terms of their, uh, their uh, Tier 1 credit ratios and how much money they had to keep in reserve. They, they eliminated that for them in this period of time, which is kind of unprecedented. And, uh, you know, they, they're creative. They, they can do a lot of different things. So one thing the Fed can't do is it can't open businesses. The, the, uh, the governors and the president have to do that. Uh, and we have to defeat the coronavirus first. Uh, but mm -hmm. the Fed will be there with, uh, you know, low uh, borrowing costs, et cetera, and I think that will help a lot. Yes. Well, great. Well, this has uh, really been great information. You guys are uh, really uh, incredibly smart. Uh, we have a lot of clients that have money invested with you, so we're very uh, proud of that. You've done a great job through this environment. And, uh, Chris, uh, I think that's, uh, think that's where we'll leave it for this segment of the podcast, huh? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for you guys for being on and joining us. And uh, it's always interesting talking to, uh, to some guys, uh, Bond guys, because, I mean, you guys are the smartest guys in the room, I feel like. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, thanks again, Bob and Josh. Thanks for being on the Four Star Podcast, and thanks for being Four Star Advisors as well. Thanks for having us. Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for being with us. And uh, the original uh, interview, uh, interview, the original discussion, then the interview with the Barones, um, I just want to say and wrap up that uh, even though this is a terrible time, there's a lot of good things going on. The other night I saw uh, a concert uh, that was actually held on Fox News Nationwide with Elton John. And he had Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day and Lady Gaga and the Backstreet Boys. And, and so they did a concert just to get everybody uh, seeing uh, the culture and things that we've done in the past. That so we can't go to concerts now. We, you know, we can't go to you know, see hockey games or baseball games and everything. So at least the, you know, the community is stepping in to help everybody. Uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Showtime. Uh, you know, Ozark just got released on Netflix, right? So we've been binging mm -hmm. on that in the evening, right, Chris? Uh, you're yep. watching uh, Amazon, right, Chris? Yeah, I mean, we got there's a bunch of shows on Amazon, and actually, it's it's really cool that you have a lot of these streaming providers that are even releasing um, the releasing uh, series and stuff earlier because they see the demand here. So, um, yeah, you know, I think uh, pretty pretty crazy with all the stuff going on, but uh, you know, there's always. Always things to stream, right? There's thousands and thousands of shows. Well, there's warmer weather now, so we've had some really nice days. Um, yep. You know, a lot of people are getting exercise in now, and, and I have an exercise bike at home, and I got on that exercise bike again, and I realized it's been three years since I've been on that bike uh, by the by the uh, by my age, and when you go through the entries that you have to put in there, so I usually have been working out at a at a club uh, here in Chicago. So uh, now I'm changing my habit patterns and doing some positive things, and maybe working out at home now, and so that's all all good stuff. So uh, spring is coming. Uh, we can still walk. Jogging hasn't been outlawed yet. I know in Chicago they've cut down, uh, uh, they've cut all the, they've closed all the parks. 
Uh, we're uh, I was over by the Bean, the famous Bean in Chicago, and uh, the Bean is closed. Everything's closed, but you can take a photo of the Bean in the distance, but you can't go up to it. Uh, so uh, anyway, but but we're trying to find the good, man. Uh, we got to do that. We got to have a good time, try to enjoy ourselves, even though it's a very strange environment. So. Yep. Yeah. It's a uh, you know everyone has their struggles with the, the current environment, and I think you just try to make the best of it. Um, you know, modify, working out at home, workout videos, whatever you need to do to try to, you know, keep as much of your day-to-day uh, routine as possible. And uh, people yeah. are finding unique ways of doing that, whether it's the Zoom happy hours or, you know, digital happy hours or, you know, there's there's unique, interesting things coming out of this as people have to flex their creativity uh, to kind of um, experience some of the normal stuff they used to that they can't really do much anymore. I know a lot of people that have participated in those virtual happy hours too, Chris. It's a great fun, and I actually saw someone send out a um, a, uh, a diagram of their home, and instead of doing a wine tour in uh, from winery to winery, they're doing a wine tour in their home <laughs> from from room to room. So, <laughs> so maybe there's some creativity there. So anyway, we're just saying everybody try to enjoy yourself anyway. Uh, be safe. Be careful. Uh, stay uh, socially distant to make sure we don't uh, pass this virus. Along, uh, and then we've we've actually heard a lot of outgoing phone calls uh, from friends uh, and friends of clients uh, that aren't happy with what's going on in their investment account. And we just put in the, the shameless plug that we're happy to talk to your friends on a referral basis. If anyone is still concerned about what they've experienced in this market and they don't have confidence in their advisors, we're happy to talk to your friends. Uh, either help just help them out or uh, become their advisor if they choose that. So um, again, thanks everyone everybody for listening. This has been a longer version, uh, but we wanted to give everybody a full update. Uh, the Barones were very helpful on the bond uh, portion for those that are interested, and uh, we all wish you a good week. Uh, call us anytime, but we'll be back at least in about a week uh, to discuss more about what's happening at that time.